Just closing up, fellas. Coffee? Black. Same. I'll have some pie. Some of that lemon meringue guys, pie. Guys, I'm sorry. We're close. I said... Coffee! Hello there, and welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio, and this is episode 85. 85. Like, year I was not alive in. I was, it was, 85 was a good one. You were barely alive. I was three. I don't remember three. I don't either, but I'm here, which means... Was it a good one? Re- Reagan had just got reelected. The second term. It's not my fault. No, America loved it. He didn't win, like, I think he won, like, 48 He was 48 states, right? 48, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so people thought it was a good thing, and then and then <laughs> then it was then it wasn't anymore. Not. Boy, luckily, luckily, it was the first time America turned down a woman to be anywhere near the office of presidency. They're just getting progressively worse at that. I'm not sure that was her fault, though. No, <laughs> I'm pretty sure it wasn't her fault. <laughs> um, she died recently, right? I think so. Um, for yeah, she did. She did. Yeah, when was that? I don't remember. Like two or three years ago. Yeah. Now, now we're getting heavy. Um, here's suppose, to you, Geraldine. Yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna toast Geraldine Ferraro right now. With a, what beer is this? This is, this a, is the last of the um, the last the journey. Oct- yeah, of Oktoberfests. Um, it is a two roads, Oktoberfest. Ock, two Berfest. Yeah, why I don't know. Oh, because it's two roads. Yeah. That's oh yeah, that took me a second to, to get it. Oh, it's a Marzen style lager. So really, it's not. So the other day. Somebody who's who's really pretentious in their their German beer knowledge, I guess, because he's been to Germany several times. Is like, listen, you can't really call this an Oktoberfest. I don't know why Americans always call this Oktoberfest. I'd be great if he listens to this, because um, <laughs> you know, it's actually a Marzen, and Marvin's Marzen's not even served in the Bavarian region, which I didn't know because I've never been to Germany. Yeah, I, we I don't, don't spend a lot of time in the Bavarian region. I don't have a gigantic stick up my ass when it comes to this sort of thing. <laughs> Um, Bavarian and he's like, he's like, this wouldn't even be allowed in the tent. It would even be sold outside. And I'm like, oh, okay. In the tent? No, like the beer tents at October and like Oktoberfest. Oh. And I was like, oh, okay. He's like, like there'd be Hellas and um, whatever style Oktoberfest actually is. But uh, I like how I like how May Two Roads is heard a guy like Ken before and like go fuck yourself, man. We're gonna call it. We're gonna we're gloat. Putting it right in the can. We're gonna gloat that we're actually a Marzen. We're gonna put it. That, we're gonna say it's a Marzen and put a guy in Lederhosen on the can. Blowing, blowing the stick that has probably shoved up those people's asses. It's the Ricola horn. We just lost the like seventy-seven viewers that we have. We, who most all of care? Our, yeah, most of our all care about. German. <laughs> who knew? <laughs> Why right. do we think Germans care that much? I don't know. I'm not gonna make assumptions. Yeah, I don't know. They might caravan uh, over here. Oh, then we'll discharge the <laughs> army to stop them. Yeah, all eight hundred. Uh, it tastes like a Marzen to me. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what a Marzen tastes like, to be honest. But uh, remember tastes... a couple of weeks ago when you were talking about sweetness? This is a little sweeter than that um, than the East Rock one we had. Yeah, it's not aggressively sweet. Um, and I guess the East Rock one is closer to what you actually would expect in 
an Oktoberfest German beer, approved, an, yeah. an authentic. Uh, um, but you know what? This is as as a American born American as I am from America. Uh, uh, this gives my stamp of approval. I I like it. Yeah, it's a good. It's a. I drank a bunch of these over the weekend. Yeah, and I enjoyed every single. Actually, one of you them. should tell that story. Oh yeah, my. Well, I mean, this, it's not really much of a story, but the liquor store that I go to overbought like tons of beers. They have stacks of like industrial arts wrench in the front that's of the not, store. That's not a bad one. No, but they, and they had it on sale. I don't remember what the sale that price $3 was. Too? No, I this was three dollars apparently for four packs. Yeah, it was three dollars. If this is three dollars for four packs of wrench, we'd stop this podcast and. I was very excited. Stock up. I have I have a lot of Red Dead Redemption two to play this weekend, so I just <laughs> would drink like stacks of wrench. Well, I feel like an idiot because I bought like four four packs of them, um, sixteen beers, and I I wish I had bought way more. I wish I had just kind of stocked my fridge with that stuff. Yeah, and just had it for yeah, a that's long what, time. Seventy five cents a beer. That's exactly seventy five cents. Sixteen cent ounce beer. can. That's oh. that's pretty good. That is. It's exceptional. Six six. Mario's doing math, folks. Five five cents an ounce. Hmm. No, a little less than five cents. <laughs> That'd be eighty cents. Well, not bad. All right. Um, uh, the, this math break brought to you by Goodyear Tire. Yep. Our first sponsor. Who <laughs> don't know it yet? That's okay. Like Bavarian tires. All right, Mario. Let's talk about the one movie we both saw this week. Um, it is Mario Heller's "Can You Ever Forgive Me?" Her directorial debut, theatrical yeah. directorial debut. Nobody's going to pay for the writer Lee Israel right now. Months behind in my rent, and my cat is sick. It's four in the afternoon, and you're drunk. I'm hardly drunk. Craigie, top her up. Find another way to make a living. Quite by accident, I find myself in a criminal position. I'm embellishing literary letters by prominent writers. These are wonderful. Name your price. Um, it was written by Nicole Holof Center and... A Jeff Witty. You want to make Whitey? sure Jeff... Whitey gets his credit. Witty Whitey. Well, he he did write Avenue Q. Oh, so there you go. So he's um, that going for him. It stars Melissa McCarthy as Lee Israel, who wrote um, a bunch of obscure, semi-obscure celebrity biographies in the seventies and eighties. And she's fallen on some hard times, and she's started forging letters from uh, authors. And no. selling them to bookstores. Noel Coward and, and Dorothy Parker. Actresses as well, Dorothy yep. Parker. Billy and, and Hellman. Um, and uh, Fanny, Fanny, Fanny Bryce. Bryce. Um, through the course of her travels, she meets Jack Hawk, played terrifically by Richard E. Grant at the local bar. She encounters uh, Anna, played by Dolly Wells. She's a bookstore owner. Uh, her agent, who doesn't want to return her phone calls, is played by Jane Curtin. You know, tells her to get a get a real job, write something that someone wants to read. Um, thoughts, Mario? I really very much enjoyed this movie. Mm, me too. Um, we had a pretty striking discussion about Land of Steady Habits uh, about a month ago. Nicole Hofstetter's um, written, directed film mm-hmm. about how it kind of tells a tale that doesn't need to be told anymore. Um, you know, affluent white people doing affluent white things and having affluent white problems. And man, does this movie do 
all the opposite of that. Yeah. And it tells people on hard times, I mean, still white, but it is such, for me, such an uncomfortable movie to watch, but man, is it enjoyable all the way through. And I think that's one of the, the standout thing about this movie. And Nicole Hollister is a, traditionally a very good screenwriter. Oh, no, um, no. And I, of all the movies I've seen of her, Land of Steady Habits is the only thing I don't like. Me too. Right. And I agree with you. Like, Land of Steady Habits is a miss. Yeah. Um, she redeems it's an her, aberration. She redeems herself 100% with this movie in terms of 2018. It, she doesn't even need to redeem herself. It's no, just more a matter of like, oh, was, she really is great. But I was disappointed with Land of Steady Habits. And I was not at all disappointed with this movie. Um, and I think that's the thing that stands out for me, you know, on the surface is that it's a lot of fun. You know, it's a very... Oh, it's not fun for me. Oh, see, I had a lot of fun with it. And I... Knowing, I assumed it was going to turn out... We'll have a conversation about how all right everything turns out. Um, but I didn't linger on what was going to happen to her. Um, I just kind of went along for the ride. And part of the ride is getting to watch um, Melissa McCarthy do all the things that I want an actor to do in a movie. And do them perfectly. And... Um, She's exciting, and she's, I mean, I, you know, we talked a couple of weeks ago about how Lady Gaga kind of works as an actress because she's got a really magnetic screen presence, um, and Melissa McCarthy has that times a million. Um, I, will, I will say that this is right now in the front-running position of my best actress of the year. Mm. She's fantastic. She's wonderful this. in this movie. And um, I've always thought she's been really underutilized as an actress. I, I did not enjoy her in Bridesmaids, what she got nominated for. Mm-hmm. Uh, I felt like people have always made her a caricature mm. of, um, you know, what, what she could bring to, to film. And this movie 100% leans on her as her performance, mm-hmm. leans on the gravity that she could bring to this film, and fuck, does she deliver. Well, and it's just, you know... So I was reading about this movie, and I guess Julianne Moore was originally supposed to play mm-hmm. Lee Israel. And I was, you know, I was thinking about it, and I was like, well, that's... She's going to act the shit out of it, for sure. Yeah. But it's going to come off as... It's going to come off different. It's not going to come off as her personality. It's going to... Like, all the things that she would be acting on are not going to seem as organic as Melissa McCarthy makes them out to be. I mean, this is a... She plays a lived-in character. It's a lived-in performance. She understands the nuances of what it means to be this person perfectly, and while still like bringing, there's a lot of this fear of 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 the self. She she lives in this character, but she's so distant from it until you know later, like that that late in that third act that that film needs. I, I think somebody like a Julianne Moore or somebody who's, who's a more renowned actress in the sense of their, their dramatic performances would have lived in their performance a lot more. What? There is a separation that Melissa McCarthy has in this. Mm. Lee Israel for a lot in the sense of an artifice. She, she puts a lot of artifice. Yeah. A, you know, obviously like a facade. There, there's a human being underneath there. But she does such good work with that. But I think one of the things that I really like about her performance in this is that I think another actor would have really dug in to the misery of this character. 
But Melissa McCarthy can do that and still give her a lot of heart. Yeah. And make her somebody that you root for. I mean... Um, Who you feel bad for. Right, which is... I mean, Armand White's review essentially takes the film to task for not being hard enough on her. You know, he's essentially saying that, like, she's getting away with something and, you know, us and the liberal elite because we really like our our white writers and things and um, we're, you know, we're comfortable with, you know, her being able to just get a probation, keep going on with her writing life and yada, yada, yada. But I think the beauty of this movie is that that's not true. She doesn't win anything. I mean, her life, she's, her character is... Everything's stripped away at the end. The same. Yeah, she gets, I mean, she's, she writes a good book, but she's still as... A real book. She writes a real book. Right, she writes a real book, but she's still as Jack calls her when he leaves the movie, a horrid cunt. You know what I mean? Oh, man. Like, she's never, and she doesn't... Doesn't ever change her personality. I think. I think a lot of times we talk about expectation in films, and I think me and you have this a lot, where we want film to do something, yes. and when it does it, we lose our minds. <laughs> like we get very excited. We're gonna talk in some future episode about Columbus, yeah, and about how when you know she's talking about the bank. When I sat there and first saw that movie, I just wanted it to cut away and you not hear what she says, and it doesn't, you know, mm-hmm. and that just like makes me lose my mind. And that entire conversation, just how authentic that relationship is between Grant and McCarthy, I was like, oh man, if this relationship doesn't end with with how well these two work together and with how much abrasion there is in this relationship if this doesn't end with her calling her, him calling her a cunt i'm gonna be like slightly disappointed <laughs> in the fact that it ends with that and not not any disrespect to the characters no. the fact that there's such a realistic relationship between and the fact that it ends with that i'm like thank you what i think this is what i think that's the first time that word's used in it too and that's like the one yeah. curse word that still has like panache in 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 film that isn't like gravity yeah 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 yeah. it's i mean obviously there's other ones but the the ones without being salacious well you it's it's the one kind of like acceptable curse word that has like a punch to it i think it's one of those fact they use it i just love oh i really like this movie it's the thing you're gonna call somebody and you gotta mean it you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like you're not gonna just toss if if you're just tossing off that word your movie's gonna be less authentic and the fact that he means it and it defines and it's 15 minutes of the movie but it is an endearment term too um and I think it's interesting, the juxtaposition between the two characters and the two actors is really interesting, because while we're saying that um, through all of Lee's misery, she still has this core of heart um, that you kind of cling on to, that you're able to root for, Richard play, Richard E. Grant plays Jack with this outward facade of heart, with this really deep, complex core of misery, which... Yeah, there's there's Lee so much. Just kind of tries to chip away at through the whole movie, but I mean, he never lets you in until like the end of the movie. But then he's miserable about, about something else, and he can't hide it anymore. I mean, that last face that he makes um, at her after he says, "Don't make me look stupid," um, is just a profound face. And how much he hobbles himself. I mean, he's already like deeply sick, you know. But the fact that he, of how 
there's a certain way in which he carries his body that suggests, like, when as he walks out of the bar, that suggests like a lot more vulnerability. Well, it's really it's a physical performance because yeah, there's a, like a concavity to his chest almost where he's yeah. just he's already he's already sunken. You don't, I mean, you know how much and time it's not, has passed. It's not it's not necessarily the sickness, but it's just like a, a willingness to be vulnerable to her. And it's and it's the loss of. It's the loss of the friendship. So now he doesn't have to be... I don't know, the strong one. He doesn't have to keep up with her. There's a division finally between them. They're not down and outs in the same way anymore. You know what I mean? He, His down and outness has a real definition where hers is still kind of all in her head. You know what I, I mean? See, it's, to it's me, an under- to me it's... Hers is an underappreciatedness and his is almost like a cultural invisibility. See, to me, I took it more as like they no longer have to use one another as a crutch for their own problems. And so they can be real to one another. But I don't think he was ever using her as a crutch for his problems. Not not necessarily a crutch for the problems. Okay. They don't have to use one another. They don't have there's there's nothing to gain from their there's no outward um, Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Gains from the relationship. Like he obviously is homeless throughout the entire film. Um or is you know couch surfing basically homeless, um, so he's always putting on that that facade, and once you know he's he's kind of like, not necessarily betrayed her, but kind of like, turned on her. There's no longer that need for that, and they mm-hmm. can, that that last scene is great because that's the first time, that you get the truly authentic friendship, and the fact that mm-hmm. even though the friendship's ending. That they truly cared for another. It's mm-hmm. it's the most kind of it's it's the one scene that like of their relationship that kind of made me smile in a way. I, I have to say this: most of this movie, I've this weird trait where when I'm in an uncomfortable situation watching a film, I sink in my seat and put my fingers over my ears in a certain way where I can still hear what's going on. Uh huh. But I I don't know why this happens, but I it's just my like little safety like Linus blanket. I put my f- fingers on my ears yeah. so I can hear it, but I'm like, oh, I don't necessarily have to hear it, and I can stop it. And man, for the f- first hour and 20 minutes of this movie, did I do that so many times. Huh. And then in that restaurant scene, where they're the, that, that final bar scene, where they're the most vulnerable and the most honest and earnest with themselves, mm. I didn't need to do that. Mm. And that's like a testament to, to the screenwriting, to the direction, and to the two performances. Yeah, it's... um. I don't know. I hope it gets. I hope it finds its audience. Um, oh, it better. I hope so. It fucking better. Um, I mean, I like. I like Lady Gaga in in Stars Born. It's the only thing I like. Well, she's that. not better than Melissa McCarthy. She's not. Um, Maggie Gyllenhaal is good, in kindergarten. She's the only thing that that makes kindergarten teacher work. Mm-hmm. She's not Melissa McCarthy. No. Um, I mean, uh, Richard E. Grant's phenomenal. Oh yeah. I mean. Man, could this man play like the perennial drunk who cannot drink in real life? Yeah, he's, um, I don't know, he's kind of doing, he's not doing something different, but he's bringing, uh, I don't know, it's it's one of those things where we're like, you know, next week we're going to talk about a movie where we're going to kind of puzzle over, I think, the, the meaning of the movie, like the, the context and, and how everything links together and what the ultimate message of the movie is. I think one of the really good things about a really good performance is that I don't 
have any questions about what this movie as a whole means or what it's trying to say. Um, but I can ruminate over, you know, the things that's, you know, the things I took away from, from Richard E. Grant's performance, you know what I mean? And how his performance as a whole works and not just as in the context of, of the movie, but in the context of creating, creating a self um, and the Melissa McCarthy, you know, we're going to have that conversation for a long time, I think, about how she develops this character into someone who's doing something, who's taking advantage of a lot of people, knowingly taking advantage of a lot of people, but who you feel bad for, who you you can sense that it's not 100% her fault. It is because she's you know, what Jack says she is. But she's also doing the work that she thinks that she should be doing, that she, she thinks she was meant to do. Yeah. Um, and that's all of a sudden, culturally, not from a societal standpoint, that's not good enough anymore. And where does she, where does she, where does she go from here? No, exactly. And it's so earnest. And that's but important. But fun. I, it's it's fun. fun. No, it's fun. No, it is... It's uncomfortable, very yeah. uncomfortable for me, at least. I mean, in the sense of you root for her. You, you know, you root for Lee and you root for her relationships. But you know that as she dwells further down into deception, she's, mm-hmm. she's not going to, you know, things aren't going to work out for her. And that fucking, that courthouse speech is... Oh, it's a great speech. That's hopefully the speech we hear, you know, in fe- that's hopefully the, the shot we see in February. Um, when she's nominated for the Oscar, um, well, then you. What do you? This is. I, I just oh, uh, let me bring your. I point. was just going to say you also get those. You get two kind of congruent scenes with that, where she's kind of found out, where um, that one guy you know who comes out of the bathroom washing his hands, then tries to blackmail her for five thousand dollars. Her husband in real life. Yeah, her husband in real life. Falcon. And then the other guy who, um, um, Scott. Spinelli, I forget his name. Yeah, Steve um, Spinelli. Yeah. Steve Spinelli, yeah. Um, and when he tells her that, you know, he's got all these phone calls about how her letters aren't really real, and he feels for her too. That's he, nice and, too. exactly. And that's it's he's a he is expressing what you know the audience is probably feeling at that point. But Melissa McCarthy does you know such great emotional work without really having to say a whole lot. Um, when confronting those two situations, and they're just it, they kind of they mesh with that scene in the sense that the writing is really good, so it works really well. Um, and it's not that she's crying; it's that sometimes she's not crying, and sometimes she has kind of a smirk on her face, and then she goes from smirk instantaneously into about to completely lose it. Um, and yeah, all, I mean, she just does all those things so well. She carries all of these emotions with her, which are honest, true emotions, um, you know, through the whole movie. Yeah, no, I agree. And I don't know, I think we're having this conversation in the upcoming months. Aren't you a little bugged by the fact that there's, there's two really good earnest performances this year? Mm-hmm. And McCarthy as Lee Israel and like Elsie Fisher in eighth grade, mm-hmm. and you know the supporting performance is also very earnest. That 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 
bring them up in you know Josh Hamilton and Richard E. Grant and aren't you afraid that the we're gonna forget those performances and that like the year is gonna trend more towards this not necessarily fantastical but Just as we talk more easy. has yeah as we talk more and more about Lady Gaga and fucking Bradley Cooper or do we have to talk about them they're, they're, we're going to you know people are going to and and the fact that we're gonna trend more towards those discussions isn't that a bummer in the sense um, that like you know why you have such really excellent grounded performances and we are abandoning that for this but who's abandoning it not us no not us but and not and the culture but like people in well, general so are going to watch these performances they're going to watch you know so obviously there's the oscar bump sure but here's a perfect example so and we're being presumptuous obviously on the way over here Tonight, I listened to the Brett the newest Brett Easton podcast where he talked about, um, you know, the lineage of the Star is Born, you know, remake starting from, you know, 1937, 54, 76, you know, onto the piece of shit Bradley Cooper, Lady Gaga one. Um, and I think one of the interesting things about this discussion that you just kind of brought up is I think in reality, regardless of how many Oscars A Star Is Born gets nominated for, how many it may win, um, it's always just going to be the 2018 remake of a 1976 movie that was a remake of a 1954 movie that was a remake of a 1937 movie. Always. Forever, forever, forever. And you're going to say... Which one do you like more until the 2027 version comes out? And then you'd be like, oh, I like this new 2027 it, version. This is kind of like, okay, like, to bring this over to film, this does kind of bum you out, though, in the fact that, like, let's, the easiest example I can think of, um, and you'll maybe disagree with me on this, and it got Oscar nominations, but it's ultimately forgotten. Look at 2004 Sideways. We don't really talk about that movie at all. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it, but people in general don't talk any, about it anymore. And that was like a nice little slices life film, but it got so buried underneath the weight of Million Dollar Baby, you know, to an extent, finding uh, Ray more so. Um, oh, oh man! I was gonna say Finding Neverland, but nobody talks about Finding Neverland. No one talks uh, about Ray either, except for the fact that Jamie Foxx is still a person <laughs> and has to be but, referred to occasionally as an Oscar winner. But the fact, that, like you know, Million Dollar Baby is more so in the forefront of people's minds than something like Sideways is. It's, it's, it kind of bums me out. It's like, a, like these slice of life features don't resonate, and it's yeah. unfortunate because, but, like, I understand film is an escapism to an extent, and like a lot of times that is great and it works. Uh-huh. But man, sometimes you just want perspective on but somebody else's about, life. But think about this idea. So, so we talked about a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Bicycle Thief, how Bicycle Thief at the time... Thieves. Bicycle Thieves at the time was... Very what, important that we <laughs> make sure that the film title's done appropriately. Sure. Because it really matters thematically. I guess. But not in this conversation. That's bad. Um... When it first came out, was on you know number one or number two on, on the number on, one on Sight and Sound, yeah, on Sight and Sounds, greatest films of all time. Um, Fifty years goes by and it's not on the list anymore. Yeah, now, Although we don't know where it's going to be in twenty twenty two, right now it's not on the list. But it is now number two on BBC's best foreign films of all time. You know what I mean? 
And so this stuff, this stuff, and I'm not saying the sideways is going to come around and do that. I'm not saying that can you ever forgive me is going to come around to be regarded as this um, high watermark of of you know American realism from this like era of film. But I guarantee you, can you forgive me is going to be regarded in better standing than um, than A Star Is Born. It, doesn't it, it? Doesn't it suck that we're one year away from the you know 2017 Oscars, and yet people still all know as much as me and you both love Guillermo del Toro, are still talking about Shape of Water, but nobody's talking about Florida Project anymore. And nobody's talking about Mother anymore, and no one's talking about... I mean, the only reason anyone's talking well, about Mother, Call Me Mother your... is obviously like a... Sure. But nobody's talking more about... More fantastical example, but the Call Me reason... By Your Name or... The only reason people are I... talking about that is because of Suspiria is coming yeah. out. Um, but nobody's talking... Nobody, nobody's eagerly anticipating Sean Baker's next movie right now in terms of the general filmography. No, but everyone's but... talking about, you know... To- stories to tell in the dark for well, so we talked for we talked last week about uh, you know old man of the gun and you know who is you know when they talk to david lowry on interviews they're just like so you did ain't the body saints you did pete's dragon you did ghost story yeah what was that what was ghost story about and then you did this movie like how do those three movies work together like ghost story didn't really like, oh ghost story is an anomaly Ghost Story is David Lowry for all for the few problems that I have with Ghost Story. Ghost Story is David Lowry's <laughs> best movie. Yeah, but it's just kind of forgotten. It's just disappeared. It's been on Prime for an eternity. It's been free for almost the like you know the month after it got released. It oh, was for, on Amazon for has for as good of a year as 2017 was. It's such a bummer well, for what got recognized by the culture. And it's one of those things where I think I'm going to go through this a little bit this year, too. Man, are we gatekeeping like motherfuckers? Mo- but yeah, whatever. fuck that shit. Um, I got six movies, seven movies, six movies on my, li- like my top six of 2017 are like point one points. If I had to, if I, if I had developed a system of ranking them based on numbers, they'd be point one points removed from each other. You know what yeah. I mean? They all exist in all, as kind of a whole for me. Um, I feel like 2018 in the end is going to turn into that also, where you have like First Reformed and Blaze and something like Black Klansman and something like this, all just kind of competing for the same space. You know what I mean? In my head. In terms of like my affection for them. And is that... I think the reason that... This podcast exists in general... Is the fact that you and me aren't going to accept the fact that... Ordinary People won the Best Picture Oscar and Best Director Oscar. Gina Davis won for Accidental Taurus. Gina Davis won for Taurus. Two weeks. We got two weeks <laughs> without mentioning that movie. But we fucking broke it. Um, but you know, we're going to... We're gonna have a big conversation about those movies. You know what I mean? We're gonna go. We're gonna dig into this movie. We're gonna dig into you know those 2017 movies that have been completely overlooked by society. So you point to the point where you say, "Oh, you know, people ask you, what are you doing on this week? Oh, we're gonna do a we're gonna do a one-off episode maybe on some of the 2010s like Ghost Story and Columbus." And people will be like, "What are, what are those movies?" Who who is in those movies? Oh, Haley Lou Richardson. Who, because, who is she? What do you mean? Who is she? Because when people see these movies, they're like, "Oh, that's fun. That's fun, or that's entertaining." And it's just like, I 
I'm not criticizing people, but there are the criticism, but there is there becomes an echo chamber at a certain point, and I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's just because I, I get this way I every Oscar season, yeah, yeah, where I'm just like I start hearing about like stars born, stars born, and and you know you expect that Oscar backlash. Um, well, then you, and then you man, start, it's, it's I mean, frustrating. When you start seeing all these really great movies coming out at the end of the year, and you're like, oh, and, and you look at all the Oscar criticism sites, or you look at all, and you look at any discussion, it's just like, it's instantly forgotten. You're like, come on. I mean, like, when you saw... Let it be in the conversation. You saw Can You Ever Forgive Me at Criterion, I'm assuming, right? Yeah, of course. So did they show a trailer for If Beale Street Could Talk? They did not. Okay, so they showed a trailer for If, if Beale Street Could Talk at the Milford Theater, where I saw it on Thursday. And I had I, a favorite and I trailer. just I just want I got a favorite trailer too but I just hope to God that this movie is as like mind-blowingly good as it looks because I was almost enraptured by the fucking trailer you know what I mean and if this movie's any good people are gonna look at a Star Wars born and be like who fucking cares you know what I mean look at this movie look at this and that's where I think we're gonna go with, and not that it matters. Which is like, Melissa which is McCarthy great because, like, because like even like because people are gonna look at this movie and they're gonna be like, well, look at what Lady Gaga did. She was kind of interesting, and they're gonna look at what Melissa McCarthy did. And they're gonna be like, well, but look at this. Look what is happening here. It's not just that she's being super cool and vaguely anachronistic to what we expected of her. She's developing a human. Yeah, I mean, and that's the whole fucking point of this. I mean, which is not to criticize. The Gaga's performance. No, I think, I think she's really of, good. Of the one thing we could like positively say about Star Wars Born, it's going to be Gaga. I but. liked watching her. I, I liked watching her interact with the screen. That was awesome. It was yeah. exciting. It was the one time that movie was exciting. Um, if if but the, she's if, not if doing Star this. Is Born is nominated for Best Picture, the only way I'd excuse it is because of her performance. The only way I would excuse it is if it loses. To first reformed or, or loses any or, or to you know, whatever. so far first reformed, but or several other films that have come out this year. You know, we have, you know, we're private life, private life, another Pri- good yeah, slice exactly. of life movie, or this movie. You know what I mean? If it loses to this movie, I'll be like, good, yeah, because this movie deserves it, and because these actors deserve and it, it's and it's not even this our director even, deserves it. It's neither because, of our favorite movies of the. It's neither of our top movies of the year. Free. If the it's in my top aca- yeah, if the 10. academy came down and said like, "Hey, Tom and Mario, for some reason this year we're gonna let YouTube cunts decide the Oscars," like we would not pick it first, but but it'd be nominated, yeah, and she would win my actress probably for this year so far, and oh, he yeah. might win my supporting actor maybe, maybe, yeah, uh, Hamilton still for me, but it'd be her and Isley Fisher close. Oh I think gosh. she would go. What What are you doing? Oh my God. We talked about this in one of our first episodes. I really love Dave. All right, we need to get out of here. Okay. All right. Uh, we'll be right back with our number 85s. All right, we're back. My number 85 is David Cronenberg's 2005 movie, A History of Violence. And as we did last week, uh, I will not be talking a lot during this portion of the show because this film is also on my list in a long 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 time yeah the same thing's gonna happen next week but in the reverse um 
but that's fine. We've we've approached this. And it makes before. our shows short, shorter. Some people have been complaining <laughs> about our shows being like a little too long, guys. Who the Germans? Um, Mostly the Germans. Yeah. The Bavarians. Um, Those caravanners. This one may be topical when this episode airs, but go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. No, when this episode airs, that caravanning thing will probably have pushed a lot of Republican candidates back into office, and we'll just be all sad for lots of different reasons. Um, not just because we're drinking the wrong beer for October. Um, November now. November. So, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, I'll just do a real quick thing. Um, synopsis of the movie. Viggo Mortensen plays Tom Stahl, um, who owns a diner in a small town. Uh, he's married to Edie. Played by Maria Bello. He has two children. Um, I believe is, she used to be a, a cheerleader. She was a cheerleader at one point. Um, he encounters two, a dastardly duo in his diner. This is my introduction to Stephen McCaddy. I've recognized him since then. Well, I've had this. I feel like we can have a, like a, a similar conversation to the one we had about Billy Drago, about Stephen McCaddy. Like how he just kind of is in stuff and he always plays roughly the same character and you're always kind of like oh man. well at first i looked at i looked at i was like oh is that lance hendrickson and i started like thinking like stephen mccaddy was discount lance hendrickson but then seeing more stephen mccaddy i'm like oh no he's actually pretty good no yeah stephen mccaddy is kind of excellent when when, yeah. you, when you see him in stuff you're like all right at least there's gonna be one good performance in this yeah movie. exactly um he plays a criminal um, I don't think he's attached to anything. They're not, he's not attached to the later mafia. He seems to be just kind of like a him and his partner Billy, kind of um, like forces of evil. Yeah, but they're definitely they're on the run from they're something. Bandits, yeah, yeah, sort of. Um, they're running out of money. They're on they're on the run, as we said. Um, they're running out of money. They stop at Tom's diner to to, to steal from him. And murder um, If him. they have to kill him in the process, they're going to do it. You get the idea. It. They're just going to do it. Right. I mean, that, that introductory scene kind of gives you the idea it's going to happen. Sure. Um, and Tom stops him using some very swift thinking slash maneuvers, almost kind of like a learned reaction to, you know, when someone pulls a gun on him. Um, you know, he interacts with the scene around him. He's got the... He's got the, the, the coffee pot plays plays a role in it. He takes a, a, a stabbing um, very well. Um, and he, he does he, he destroys a face also very well. Right. He does the things that he needed to do expertly. Which draws the attention of um, some of the Philadelphia mob represented by Carl Fogarty. Played by a great one-eyed Ed Helms. Or, Ed Helms. <laughs> no, it's played That'd by Ed Helms. <laughs> the re- no, now I'm imagining Ed Helms. Where um, people be like, who's, Ed, who's this guy? Do we, have Ed to, Harris, do we have to worry about this guy? Ed Harris would have been good in this role. No. Now we got to hell with this guy. Meanwhile, like, we put this guy in the office. Yeah. Put this guy in the Daily Show. He'll be good. Oh, is he um, the Daily Show? Yeah, he was I never Daily watched Show the Daily Show. I don't know why I'm surprised. Um... Played by Ed Harris, um, in you know a really great, you know, fairly stereotypical Ed Harris role. I think, you know, he gets to do a kind of hard accent um, that goes with his gravelly voice really well, and he gets to make a you know have a crooked smile on his face the whole time and gets well, to say vaguely threatening but humorous things. I mean, in this he got to stay a villain. He wasn't like turned into some sort of villainous antihero. Mm. I was. 
Are you referencing in something specific? Like The Rock. And oh, yeah. like how Jackson Pollock kind of had that gruff, not villainous nature, but antagonistic nature. I thought you, were, you were mentioned the hours, but that's... I never, actually never saw the hours. <gasps> it's okay. Um, yeah, it's very okay. The whole movie culminates in... From the bits I saw of it. I'm not going to... I'm not going to talk directly about like, oh, and this is revealed and this is revealed. And, you know, um, the whole movie culminates in um, Tom <sighs> acknowledging the fact that he is uh, Joey Cusack um, and then ending up um, in back in Philadelphia talking to his brother, um, Richie, played by a really extraordinary William Hurt, who's only in this movie for eight minutes, I think, and got himself an Oscar nomination. Deservedly. Probably would have deserved... It wouldn't have been super far-fetched if he won. The The part and the performance are kind of that bonkers. Yeah, I, I prefer and him... Perfect. I definitely prefer him to um, Alan Arkin in Little Miss Sunshine. Yeah. Um, I can't remember who else was nominated that year, but... It doesn't matter. Um... So my being that this movie is still in my block of movies that I respond to on a visceral level and which has stayed in my memory because of my, you know, the physical react, my physical reaction um, to seeing them. The easiest thing to point to is the William Hurt scene. Um, I mean, I don't know. I saw it in theaters um, and it kind of blew my mind. I saw this. Opening night, because I was just a huge Cronenberg, Cronenberg fan. guy. Yeah, I um, wasn't like as much of a Cronenberg guy as I was a Viggo Mortensen guy, because this obviously came post um, Lord of the Rings. And at that point, I was like, oh, you know, Viggo Mortensen's going to do this other movie, and he's not going to be a sword wielding, you know, defender of hobbits anymore. He's going to be an actual person, and I was very excited. I was also, um, you know. I remember when Maria Bello was a famous actress. Well, she's such like a magnetic force, like not only just to look at, but like just a magnetic force. Of, like she has a real presence, a real screen presence. Yeah. Too. And she plays off of whoever she's starring across really well. Mm-hmm. Like she's able to kind of, I don't want to say necessarily mimic, but coalesce their, how they, their performance with something that's, that's believable and something a little, maybe a little more grounded almost that kind of gives, a nice in for an audience. Well, I'm just, uh, I, well, talking about this movie specifically, I mean, you've got kind of um, you've got kind of a big performance from Vigo in the sense that he's not asked to do a ton of stuff. I mean, and he's you know plays it very close to the vest, and he's kind of mild mannered, um, but he's got to do a lot of work in this movie. I mean, he has to be believable as this person of whom you don't know who like their true identity. Um, you that you have to he has to make you believe him and question him simultaneously. Well, he's he has this like great normal voice to him and and face, but there's a way in which he is able to carry his body in this that right. makes you not trust him. Well, that's one of the, I mean that's the second thing I want to talk about. So I mean, and part of the second thing is is contained in the first. Um, <clears throat> when I first saw that. You know, when we got to that part in the movie, um, I I almost couldn't handle it. I was kind of laughing out loud at every time William Hurt opened his mouth. And not because it was so funny or ridiculous. It was just so 
like profoundly bizarre it almost kind of made me think of acting in a different in a different way than i had previously thought of it i mean you, you get these move you get you, you get these parts all the time and um you know something like you know we've talked about i don't know Doctor Strangelove is a good one where, like, all the performances go, like... We'll talk about that one. We will. <laughs> but all the performances go, like, you know, way overboard. You know what I mean? It's just kind of this... this, And that's that's part of the joy of it. But, like, it's just this shooting star of, like, an acting performance where it's it's completely uninhibited. It's, um, you know, you almost feel like, you know, George C. Scott and Peter Sellers and stuff have no control over what they're doing even though they have like a maximum control over what they're doing we talked about that a few weeks ago with shot in the dark sure for for example um you know that's just the first one that comes to my head in terms of just you know he's got this philadelphia accent i guess i mean i don't know i've never met anyone like from philadelphia i know a few people from philadelphia my um, mom was born in philadelphia she doesn't have that she doesn't have twang now she left after three months she has that um What is that? She's the, the Nevada. The what? <laughs> Nevada? No, never mind. It's, um, it's called Nevada. Nevada. For listeners out there, it's Nevada. Um, but no, yeah, it, there's, I mean, it's definitely accentuated a bit, but there's... It's, but it's also... Like, everything he does in this is accentuated. Right. To the, you know, to the weirdo soul patch kind mm-hmm. of chin strap thing yeah. that he's got. Um to his suit, to his house, to his, like, you know, balding hair, to just, like, the slow way he seems to do everything. Um, it's just, it's just this, it's a really profound, it was a really profound experience for me. I got, I, and I continue to get so much out of it. Like, both joy, it conveys this really tremendous joy, but, like, also a lot of, Especially now that you uh, that I've seen it multiple times, um, there's a lot of foreboding in the performance, um, which I don't think I picked up on the first time I saw it. Where his ridiculousness is foreshadows something terrible. You always were a problem for me, Joey. When Mom brought you home from the hospital, I tried to strangle you in your crib. I guess all kids try to do that. She caught me, whacked the daylights out of me. I've heard that story. Well, what do you think? Better late than never. It's ridiculous in a sense, I think. But I think there's a lot of believability in it, in the sense of you could see... An individual in this position of power, in this kind of, you know, glass castle sort of position, acting this way when right. he's allowed to, because he's he's been untouched. Um, but what's also interesting is when you say that foreboding, and, and this is something I really see in this film, is, you know, his body language has a forebodingness to it, but it mimics what Viggo Mortensen has done earlier in the film so well. And this is one of the things that I, I think is not spoken about a lot in this film. Um, there's a real believability that, that even though they don't look at all alike and their body posture, not body postures, but their body symmetry and whatnot is completely different, mm-hmm. they you instantly believe they're brothers. I think so, too. And uh, the thing that has always done it for me is that both of their hair looks really thin. Yeah. 
and I, that's just like a little point, but it has always worked. And Vigo has has a good head of hair. Yeah, so that's, that's interesting. Um, but in this movie, it's kind of it's kind of William, not so much it's graying. Sorry, but... Um, you know, it looks really thin. It's cut really short. Um, but you're right. I've always kind of sensed that they were they were brothers, and it's also weird in the sense that by 2005, I had seen like a lot of really fucked up shit in movies. Um, and some really fucked up shit has happened, you know, in the world. Um, but I think his performance is really, like, like fucked up. I don't know. I get like kind of I get a weird vibe from it, and but it's a vibe that I like. Um, and it's you know it comes from all of those things kind of working together. It's it's really there's like a it's nice kind of an amazing. It's an amazing thing. There's almost like a, a lethargy to a life and death situation in his performance. Now he's become so numb to these situations. Even even when he's killed, you know, he just doesn't care. You know, he, <laughs> yeah. and that that's that's interesting. Like like there's no it's it, there is a resignation to his fate, but it's it's less a resignation and acceptance and more just like a this is what happens. Right. And I want I don't want to get into it too much cuz you know, I want to talk about it more when we do um your um well, we make it to your list um, in a long, long, long time. We might die of old age before we get there, but yeah, go ahead. Hopefully, um, <laughs> we it brings, I think, one of the points of the movie fully to bear, in the sense that it's not so much about Viggo Mortensen. It's not so much about. Um, you know, Joey Cusack trying to establish a new identity. It is Joey Cusack trying to establish a new personal value for the things that he never valued before. Um, and from William Hurt's performance, you can see where that stuff comes from. That, like, there's no real value to life, to family, to, um, you know, anything. Um, and that, and so he's not just trying to, he's not trying to escape, he's not trying to escape his old life. He's almost trying, it's like he's trying to escape this value system, which in turn would require him to establish a new life. Um, it's a much deeper movie, I think, than David Cronenberg kind of puts in front of you, um, on purpose. Well, I think one thing I think, and I kind of want to get your feelings on this thing, because there's a lot of contention to me that at least I've, I've approached personally in my life with people talking with about it about this scene but i think that climax and what you just said puts into perspective the earlier stairway sequence mm. where it's kind of like a really aggressive sex scene yep um which can be seen as like him falling back into his life you know joey kind of falling back into what he was this really high machismo aggression um, but I think after seeing that, and I saw this, you know, just seeing this this week, and I had never seen this before, but I kind of get a sense now, it's it's a real grasp towards a rawness mm. and an experience in life itself, because this is really has a lot of naturalistic elements to it. Yes. It's, it's a very naturalist sort of film in the sense of you know, there are those two guys in the beginning, see Mahadi and his partner Billy, are kind of like forces of nature. Like these, these, you know, kind of like what I talked about with Michael Myers, 
last week in the, in the new Halloween. Um, and, and there's a lot of like this, this in-ground touching the world as it is, the natural world. And like, you know, William Hurt's character is kind of like given that up and just doesn't care about it. And I see that sex scene as like this, this, this approach and this desperation this rawness and this primitiveness to kind of reclaim that. Mm. And, and that's why I think she responds to it the way she does. There's, there's no sort of like, she's not overtaken by it, but she's overcome by it in the sense of she embraces it too. And she senses it as well. Yeah. And to that point, it's, um, it almost seems like if we're, if we're establishing this as perhaps what's going on, it almost seems like it's her attempt to get to know him, to get to know this version of this man and her the way that she re- responds to it like after the fact when it's all done um is almost like her saying like i can't i got nothing for this like yeah. i i've got no nothing i'm not going to do anything with this Joey Cusack person yeah because you either be, you either finish becoming Tom Stall or you just you get out yeah, you know exactly. I mean and you lose everything um and that's why i think that that's why i think that that earlier earlier sex scene plays a really good role in it like looking at 2005 ideologies of of sexuality Mm -hmm. you know like the fact that he he performs kind of lingus on her it's kind of seen as this really vulnerable kind of not so masculine thing and at least in in hollywood at that time i guess i thought that was right no no, i'm gonna i have something okay yeah um but i think that's really establishing what he's becoming like this is kind of who he wants to be and who he is turning into yeah he, he really does embrace that he's not it's not a power play at all it's not a need to like reach his primal force or reach this kind of like sense of of being he has it and he has this comfort and this familiarity and has this value and i think those two scenes play off each other really well, well it's, it's an interesting scene though because you can almost see traces of the the earlier scene or you can the you can see traces of the of the stairwell scene in the earlier scene in the way that <clears throat> um Cronenberg shoots it and you see his whole head disappear and like she you know wraps her legs around his head and they it's not just like she's not static and he's not static it's like it's aggressive there's a need for each other there's a yeah there's a it almost seems like he's kind of like eating her and you can literally um and figuratively um he's not so figuratively he's consuming her in a way you know what I mean and that's that speaks more to his past also, it's like a, so. it's like a hint. It's like a hint there because he needs he needs her for he needs her for two um, you know for lots of reasons. He needs her from the perspective of of Tom Stall and that he loves her and he desires her and like all this other stuff. Um, but he's also he hasn't fully separated himself from this animal that you know cut out Carl Fogarty's eye. Uh, you know, just to pay him back for for something. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I, I don't know if I necessarily. I, mean, I agree with that to a point. Um, in, in the fact that like that power, not power dynamic necessarily, but it, but in the fact of the vulnerability both of them share, I think is is mm-hmm. the most interesting part of this film. And for a movie that has so much graphic violence, it's yeah. interesting. I take I took the most interest in that. Being a being a violence guy myself, um, in the fact that yeah, it it shows that you know she she has, I mean he's he's kind of seen as this really masculine dominant force, especially in that scene where he protects the diner, but you know she's the one that that is 
bringing him out of the muck, as it, yeah. as it were. Um, you mean, know, and, and it's like consuming. I don't necessarily agree with like he's consuming her. He's he needs to be consumed by her. He needs to be enveloped by her. Yeah, I I don't disagree with you, and I'm gonna. I think this speaks to my second point, where um, and we'll do my second point, and then we'll get out of here. Um, I think this is really kind of um, the whole thing as a whole. I find I find very like funny. It's a it's kind of it's not a funny movie specifically, but I find it uh, um, it amuses me. No, no, it, in I, ways I that like I think David Cronenberg's movies can be can be amusing in a kind of in a kind of black dark way. Um, I've always kind of read this movie as a kind of anti action movie. Oh no, one hundred percent. In the sense that. All the action happens really, really fast, and like, and in these bursts, and the way that they're edited, you get to see everything cleanly, but you don't get to see it for very long. Um, and it's gross when yeah. you see it; it's it's uncomfortable. It's it's for its time, especially in but a mainstream Hollywood film, is really exactly. Graphic. So it takes it. It's he's cutting it really quickly, which almost seems to suggest that he doesn't want you to see it, but you get to see it. Like when he breaks that guy's nose, um, you, you get to see him. Make that guy's nose disappear into his face. Well, it's kind of like what you'd see later. I mean, I, I would see like Solyane and all those guys kind of like do homages to it in the sense of like these really quick bursts of violence to show the graphicness of it, but not kind of a, a lingeringness. And I right. think this is a better masterclass in that. And to that point, I think one of the things, I think a lot of the action and a lot of the suspense in this movie is created by Cronenberg's use of close up. And he's got some great... I think one of the, the positives... Another one of the positives of having Maria Bello is she's got a really expressive face. And so where... Um, you know, you have Vigo who's doing so much th- with his face, even though it seems like he's not doing anything. You have um, Maria Bello, you know, just expressing all of the emotions all, all the time. Yeah, um, Ashton Holmes trying not to be Jesse Eisenberg. But he's... but He's, he's good, he's good. But he's but... part of it, too, in the sense that... He has this very stereotypical attitude about, like, no, I don't know who my dad is. I'm mad at you, dad. But his dad just stopped him from getting shot. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, there, it's, he's playing with all these action movie stereotypes and inverting them and having, like, the action suspense be contained in, you know, the nonverbal exchange between, you know, Vigo and Ed Harris you know, on his front driveway with Ed Harris's face all, you know, fucked up and just, you know, this weird sick smirk and Vigo just expressing a knowledge and an awareness of what is, uh, what has happened, what is about to happen and also deep conflict because to save them, to save his family, he needs to acknowledge you know, his Joey Cusackness. And embrace it right. for a while. Um, but he also doesn't want to do that. Well, yeah. But he also he knows that he can't, if, he, if he doesn't do that, he can't get out of this situation. He's afraid of getting lost in it again. Um, and it's a credit to Vigo that he is, is expressing all of this in his face. And that Cronenberg gives them their faces the space to do that work for him. Rather than have like a really long drawn out fight scene where like maybe the one of the guys jumps in the car and drives away and then Vigo jumps in his truck and he chases after him and he shoots at him like there's no car chases in this 
movie. You know what no, I mean? No, because if somebody all... drove away, you get the idea he would just <clears throat> let him drive away. Or even like after, like in the very beginning where um, uh, Steve McHattie and, and, and Billy are in their hotel room and they're driving away. There's that really slow car drive to the thing. And they've killed everybody in the hotel. And you get the impression from just meeting them for 10 seconds that these people are up to no good. A different movie has some kind of ex- like exciting um, you know, movement, some kind of like propulsive action that go, you know, that happens. Um, you know, even looking at something recent like Mandy, you know, there's the Black Skulls gang are tooling around on their quads and then you know, Nick Cage grabs one of the quads and he's tooling around in his quad and like there's people driving around and stuff like that. There isn't any of that stuff in this movie. When people are driving around, they drive really slow past stuff. Um, and it's all like it brings you to another. It's another example of cinema. You know what I mean? It's people do action movies one way. I'm going to do an action movie in a completely different way. Um, and I, you know, thank him for that. I mean, I got I get a lot out of this movie every time I watch it. You know what I mean? It's not one of those movies that just kind of stays. Um, the movie that I saw when I first saw it, I keep dragging new new bits out of it that I appreciate just as much as the William Hurt scene and just as much as the close-ups and um, just as much as you know Vigo's kind of unbelievable performance. Um, I have to ask this though. I always ask, ask this to people who who see both this and Eastern Promises, just because I always disagree with them. Which Vigo performance do you prefer? Eastern Promises. I'm the only person who prefers History of Violence. I think it's more nuanced <clears throat> and quieter. No way. And this is a conversation that maybe we could do a bonus episode where we compare these two performances. Um, when I saw Eastern Promises, I... And Vigo Mortensen is really good at this this stuff. He's really, really good at it. Um, and I don't think he gets... I don't think he always gets the credit he deserves. And I think that's changing Sometimes a little bit. Sometimes he gets bit. too much credit. Right. Captain Fantastic. Exactly. He's he's had this weird career. Um, but History of Violence and Eastern Promises are kind of like the pinnacle of his career. And Eastern Promises, I think, work so well because I actually... And I was actually just thinking about this, Mario. Just thinking about this when I couldn't sleep the other night. Um, a lot of actors, you think... A lot of great actors, you think of them just in terms of their the character that they play. You know what I mean? Like when I watch Daniel Day-Lewis do Lincoln or or There Will Be Blood or whatever, I just think of, oh, I just think like that's, you know, Abraham Lincoln. Daniel Plainview. Daniel Plainview, whatever. I don't think of him as, when I was watching Eastern Promises, I said to myself, like, this is Viggo Mortensen. Not so much that like I know he like it's the actor. I thought that this is who Viggo Mortensen is. Viggo Mortensen is this guy. Mm. You know what I mean? Like there was no separation between the character and like the self. He had so fully inhabited that role. I got that in in History of Violence. I I kinda get it, but I get it more with Eastern Promises. I don't I can't maybe it's like the Russian accent, you know what I mean? And um You look at Viggo Mortensen and assume he's Russian? I do, when I watched that movie, I was like, I don't even really know what I'm watching now. It was like a mindfuck. 
I was like, it's I can see that it's Viggo Mortensen, but I also know Viggo Mortensen isn't like a Russian. Yeah. I know it's somewhere in my head that he's not, but he's from look New at him. York, I but think. look at him. He is. He is Russian. Like, what am I supposed to do with this? Um, but they're both fantastic. I mean, and he does this. He does kind of the same thing in, in each one. And perhaps the conflict or the inner conflict that he brings or that he's portraying in a history of violence is one of the things that kind of um, keeps me at a distance from the performance. You know what I mean? I'm I'm responding to that conflict with conflict of my own, whereas in Eastern Promises, I was all 100% in to his performance. Yeah, cards are kind of on the table more so in Eastern Promises. I Maybe, guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I just I've always I always have to ask it's that. It's a good question, Mario. Good question. All right, so we will Wait. be gold star. Yes. yes I have to make a chart one day, Mario. You have to <laughs> it's remind a, me. It's a Text big me when fucking I chart, chart now, my friend. Um. Yeah. Well, so we'll be back in. You know, I usually give like. Two seconds with Mario's 85. <laughs> One of the first episodes of this podcast had Tom talking about Ant-Man and the Wasp. A movie I didn't Ooh. see. Um, last superhero movie I saw this year. Uh, the only superhero movie I've seen this year is Avengers Infinity War. You didn't not... see Black Panther? Oh, right. I was really drunk. But yeah, I did see it. <laughs> and it was early. It was on year. Netflix. It was on, no, it was on Netflix. Oh, okay. I, 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 I waited until it was on Netflix to watch it. Um, I'm not a superhero guy, really. Mm, They're fun. They're goofy. They're okay. At 88, Tom had Dark Knight. A movie I thought was good... But in my opinion, sort of an inferior version of Heat with, uh, with really exceptional performances and great cinematography by Wally Feister. Uh-huh. Solid direction. But I, I knew I needed to have at least one or two superhero films that really kind of encapsulated, you know, my childhood in the sense of our culmination of childhood. Because like, I, I did love the superhero genre. I mm-hmm. watched all the Batman movies in theaters. Uh, but there was one Batman movie in particular that was the perfect bridge between the Batman of my youth and an actual film that had talent behind it. And that's why my number 85 is Batman Begins. Tell us, Mr. Wayne. What do you fear? How do you know my name? The world is too small for someone like Bruce Wayne to disappear. Your parents' death was not your fault. My parents deserve justice. I cannot let that pass. If you make yourself more than just a man, then you become something else entirely. Which is a legend, Mr. Wayne. What's there to say? What's there to say about the plot? It's, it's an origin story. Um, in, in a time, 2005 film, where superhero origin stories were all the craze because of the box office success of 2002 Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, yeah, which I think is a good movie, but not exceptional. I don't think 2002's, 2004's Spider-Man 2's that great. And I'm not discrediting these films. 
I think all these movies are fun. But when yeah. you've seen thousands of movies, these superhero movies start blending together. Mm-hmm. But with 2005's Batman Begins, I, as a kid, as a young kid, loved Batman. One of the first movies I apparently ever saw when I was three, like you were in 1985. When Reagan got reelected. Was Batman. And one of my earliest memories of going to a theater was the fact that our car broke down in a really bad neighborhood and a bunch of people helped push our car <laughs> to a auto shop uh-huh. and then we walked to go see Batman Returns. Huh. I then saw Batman Forever and that was passable. And then I unfortunately saw Batman and Robin. So, you know, my childhood was kind of punctuated by Batman. That was my only kind of in with superheroes. I didn't care about Superman. I didn't watch, I didn't care about X-Men. I didn't care about any of those. Mm -hmm. But Batman was like my dude. So, you know, however, seven or so years passed and Batman Begins was coming out. And at this point, I was already a huge fan of Nolan Mm -hmm. from Memento and Insomnia, two movies I'd I'd seen already. I, I love both of them. We might be having discussions about those movies one or two of those movies in the future. And so I was so excited for it. When I saw it, it was the perfect blend of the technical sides of the superhero, you know, the 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 mystery, the intrigue, the fantasy mm-hmm. of a superhero done by a director and done by a crew who knew what the fuck they were doing. <laughs> and for me, I think this is the pinnacle of the genre. The superhero genre? The superhero genre. That was a bold statement. The Dark Knight, like I said, is, is, was disappointing for me. And the reason The Dark Knight's disappointing for me is it's so realistic. Mm. It's so grounded. It exists in a world that I can very much uh-huh. I mean, there's there's stretches of yeah, the imagination. Yeah, yeah, but I understand what you mean. Batman Begins isn't that. <laughs> no, it isn't. At all. Scarecrow has a somewhat grounded origin, but still that's ridiculous. But the thing that's most ridiculous in this movie is the fact that you have a villain with a very goofy, nonsensical weapon in the microwave. What is it, the microwave that's going to dehydrate the, the, the water supply? The water to cause, you know, the scarecrow's fear toxin. Ignoring the fact that, like, it would cause people to explode or basically the, their water in the human in their, being exactly. would shrink up. It would, they would become, like, what was that, Nightmare on Elm Street 4? Yeah. Where that woman gets kissed and, like, gets dehydrated? It just attacks the water supply. They're yeah, actually just very the specific about that in the, in the screenplay. Just the water supply. They also cut open pipelines that are hugely pressurized, but no, it's fine. They're just like kind of get casually going. Yep. So it's ridiculous. You know, there, there's this, this, this clan that, that teaches Batman that, that believes in mortality. That's also ridiculous. But the narrows are what really is ridiculous for me in this film. Uh-huh. This, it was the one time in the entire Batman series the, the Batman trilogy, yeah. where I saw something where I was like, this doesn't exist in real life. This is such a ridiculous Gotham-like space. A whole universe under under buildings? Yeah, no, exactly. This, this, this 
and, and just this decrepit space that felt like a section of a video game city. Mm. Now, very clearly defined what it is. And you had the metro rails running throughout the city. That Gotham itself felt like not so much an American city, but felt like this obligation of an American city that we can see and the cities that we see in a comic book. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's kind of touched upon in the sense that, um, you know, Ra's al Ghul says that compares Gotham to like ancient Rome, you know what yeah. I mean? And Gotham is the world's great city. It's like, is it? I didn't think it was supposed to be that. Yeah, it was supposed to be a shitty city. Yeah, exactly. And 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 I think, I I think for me, looking at this film from a technical standpoint, looking at it from a storytelling standpoint, looking at the score, looking at Nolan in control of his story, looking at, at Feister's uh, cinematography, I do think Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises are more proficient. However, they're cleaner. Mm. They're more sanitized. Gotham just looks like a mix between Chicago and New York City. The the plans of both villains, even even though Bane's plan is a little more extreme, both just feel so blasé. Mm. And I don't have much to say about the technical aspects yeah. of Batman Begins, but this is a movie that that's that's just pivotal for me in the sense that I looked forward to it for so long. And it was a director I knew had control of his image, a director who had a voice, and he did it here. And, you know, I saw the Batman for the first time ever that existed in a world I could believe. Yeah. And still opened up so much in my mind of, of fantasy, and I, I lose that in Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises. That's an interesting point in the sense that I think this movie connects really well, kind of like you mentioned, to um, the first, you know, Batman and then Batman Returns, from the sense that... <laughs> we're going to ignore the Schumacher movies. Yeah, we're going to totally ignore them because they're <laughs> bullshit. Um, but um, there's no that such... That yacht Tommy Lee Jones bought isn't bullshit. <laughs> there's no such... You probably bought like 15 yachts oh, with sure. that money. Um there is no such city in the world as the Gotham in the first two Batman, like Tim Burton Batman movies, in the same way that there's no such city in the world as um, Batman Begins. And they both kind of really dig in, though, into trying to like establish what the principles of this world are, um, how it operates, how it functions, who the power players are. Um, I think it's smart from Nolan's perspective because he knew he was going to make three, right? I'm assuming he knew he was going to make I didn't look three. into the history, but... I just like, I can't I imagine he did a... Ba- he called the movie Batman Begins. Well, he, he knew he was going to do a sequel. He knew he was going to do Dark Knight. Right. Um, if it succeeded. I think one of the things... did. ...about the kind of genius things about, about what Nolan did here is that he kind of got all of the... A lot of that origin story stuff out of the way... Um, but did it in a new way too, which was which was good. Well, he did in it kind of yeah. It was it was interesting. There were more stakes to Batman's origin than simply his parents got killed, and then he had a lot of money, so he decided to fight crime. Um, 
you know, there was like a higher ideal that he aspired to, um, which I think because it's still an origin story, the script kind of, you know, bungles through. Oh, exactly. Um, but is more interesting than other which I, origin, you know, or which I think any even, X-Men origin story I think, or whatever. I think Nolan realized, because that, that, I think in a lot of ways where Dark Knight Rises fails is he's really trying to explain some of the pratfalls he made with the origin story in Batman Begins. Uh-huh. Because Dark Knight Rises feels so much like a sequel to Batman Begins. And it, I think a lot, a lot of criticism with Dark Knight Rises was they're expecting something to be a sequel to Dark Knight, and Dark Knight Rises is more of a sequel to Batman Begins than anything. Yeah. Um, I had something to say. Now I don't remember what it was. That um, I'm right and Batman Begins is better than Dark Knight? No, you're not right about that. I think it's interesting to watch all of these movies again um, because you're really seeing the growth of Nolan as a director. Yeah. Which is kind of fascinating um, because in Batman Begins, he hadn't yet completely learned about the difference between action move, action scenes and set pieces. So there is none of the really fantastic set pieces that you see in Dark oh, Knight. Oh, no, and I would, I would Bat- agree. In Dark Knight Rises in Batman Begins. It's just kind of a lot of fairly standard issue, you know. Car- I mean, you know, he takes the Batmobile or the Tumblr or whatever on buildings and stuff like that. And, you know, he jumps it over some stuff. And, you know, there's the train sequence and all this other stuff. But none of those things have the grandeur or the depth of... Um, you know, the truck flipping sequence or the football stadium sequence. And I think what's interesting, too, in terms of like that growth is, especially with like the train sequences, he rests so much on his actor's face. And you can kind of still see an independent director, a smaller director who, you know, needs to sell his action by the actor's response to it because he doesn't have the budget to really show what's happening. Mm. Um, when, of course, he did have that budget in Batman Begins, but he wasn't sure of himself enough yet and he just had a different like he had a different because he didn't have to focus on the joker's origin and because he didn't have to focus on batman's origin anymore he could kind of do the thing that i think you dislike about the dark knight which is kind of return this movie to its roots return the batman character to a more real world setting where there are real physics, and there are real, you know, um, Don't you just ramifications. Like how you know what I mean? flippantly they kind of write off the narrows, though, in Dark Knight. Yeah, well, they're just gone. Yeah, but I just like I don't know. There's something insincere about that. But I think there's, there's something that's kind of like betrays to me what the audience expected so much of the. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's I guess. Really, it's just personal issue, but just like it just feels so much like a got. To me, Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises, I like them both, Just, but they still feel like a guy who's really wealthy in the real world, dressing up like a bat with a ton of technology and tremendous martial arts skills, fighting dudes who just play characters but are still very grounded, and that just doesn't feel... It, it strips the fantasy of it, and I think yes. that's important. Mm-hmm. I, that's why, like, that's what frustrates me about those two movies is they're really well done... And they're very entertaining on their own. But I couldn't imagine seeing those movies as a kid and being awestruck by them in the sense of them 
just playing into my imagination. They just just inspiring the fantasy in me. I remember like when I was a little kid, I, I created like a super villain in my head called Mr. Brain just from watching the earlier Batman films. I just don't know if like Dark Knight, Dark Knight Rises does that. It, it feels so sanitized in a way yeah. that Batman Begins doesn't. That Batman Begins feels like it still feeds into that fantasy. It has some of the... Um, I don't want to say narrative chaos of the first two movies. I think that's a good point. But the imaginative chaos of the first two movies where he's just kind of um, th- not throwing a bunch of stuff at the wall either because there's there's like massive control here. But yeah, he's playing... He's allowing the world to express itself in a lot of ways. There's, uh, there's a difference between the Dark Knight where the ramifications of all the actions are death. There's not like an in-between phase. You know what I mean? You're just dead. You're you're alive and then you're dead. Um, there's a weird in-between phase though in Batman Begins in the sense that, you know, when when um, they're in the, in the Narrows or they're across the bridge or whatever um, and he lets off the, you know, he gets the thing to work and it's kind of letting off the gas through the streets and people start going crazy and they start seeing, you know, when Batman's kind of gliding through the sky, they see that, like, hyper-distorted, red-eyed monster. Um, or the horses. Or the horses. Um, I think that's where the first two, the Tim Burton Batman movies exist. You know what I mean? No. It exists I, I, in this place agree. where there's, um, the stakes aren't so much just you're alive and you're dead. The stakes are, you might go crazy. Or you might not know what's going to happen to you next. Or you may feel like an, an impending sense of doom. Um, but by by the Dark Knight, Christopher Nolan has abandoned all of those other things. And it's just it's just 100% real life. You're alive and you're dead. Um, so I can see why that would be... Like someone that grew up thinking of this stuff as a, as a fantasy would say like well i don't that's just too heavy that's just too much you know what i mean like this yeah, is yeah. this is supposed to be a comic book movie why are is everyone just why is everyone just dead why is the goal here to just kill everybody it's supposed to be about just you know gaining power not so much mass or, slaughter or even like in the idea of like let's look at the joker for example like like mass slaughter in the original batman's the goal but there's like there's that level of He's going to launch a, a, like a laughing toxin that's going to make people get those distorted smiles and laugh themselves to death. But there's, there's like this, this separation from reality. To you're going to have a parade with a duck and there's going to be prints and you're going to be in a museum that only has like four pictures but also a restaurant in the middle of it and like all this crazy stuff. Yeah, yeah exactly. But there's, there's a separation from the real world and from what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of inspires like this... this it inspires this this like thought process. At least in, I think I think has this this wonder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's lost in I, Dark Knight. It's it's lost in the sense of like there's wonder in some of the set pieces and what you see. Like, oh, that's really cool, but it's still very grounded. And I don't yeah like the grounding. Of I see it. what you. I know what you mean. And that's um, I think it's really interesting to think about the kind of ebb and flow of like superhero movies and that we kind of 
you know, we started at that one place where everything's like super fantastical, and you have you know your Batman, be- you know your your Spider Mans and your X Mans and your Batman Begins. I'm just talking about the you know the 2000s and stuff yeah, like yeah. that. Um, and then you kind of have, when Dark Knight happens, you kind of dip into this like, or do we want this to be real, or we do we not want this to be fantastical anymore? Do we want like a more grounded character and more like significant stakes? And then now we've popped back up into the, you know, where Infinity War is the biggest movie ever um, and is rooted in, in no reality. Yeah, and it's at interesting, all. too, to look at Nolan's projects that are occurring in between each of these movies, like The Prestige um, and Inception. And Interstellar takes place right after, after yeah. Dark Knight Rises. But those movies are not grounded. Like, those movies have a lot of that kind of, like, fantasy tech, like fantasy elements to them. But they still have kind of this like slight real world application, and that's interesting that he's doing those projects. But yeah. then like Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises are so grounded. Well, and, I mean, it, it's interesting to draw a line from like Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises to something like Inception, which we'll talk about later on my list, because I think he's using the cinematography and um, a lot of the production design to ground the two Batman movies in, in a, in a world that we seem like we understand, but in an inception, he's using emotion to ground it in the real world. Um, and if that movie works for you, I think it's because like it does for me, I think it's because, um, Leonardo DiCaprio's emotions are so profound and real that everything that's happening in the movie is, is is colored by them it's like the veil that hangs over everything until the veil is pulled off at the end of the movie and you can like truly understand the depth of his sadness anger conflict everything um you know it's really it's kind of it's kind of fascinating and there's a i think there's an attempt at doing something like that um in Batman Begins 2 in the sense that you're really dealing with like a story of loss. Oh, absolutely. Um, rather than you know, something like The Dark Knight where you're just dealing with a story of, of dead people. You're either going to be dead or you're not going to be dead. You just turn the key and figure it out. Or you're going to have half a face. Or you're going to have half a face. But then you're going to die. No. But, um, but no, so yeah, this, this movie was was a nice take for me in terms of getting that childhood wonder, but bringing it to, you know, me as a, as a young adult, I think I'm 19 or 18 when this comes, maybe still 18. No, mm. no, I'm 19 when this comes out and you know, like Batman, the earlier Batman's were still my first introductions to, to loving movies and loving the wonder of movies. Sure. And it was, it was just, this this reaction I had to it actually went out into the grass afterwards and flipped for some reason because I was really excited. <laughs> like the cartwheel of of a director I loved and, and had grown an appreciation for film, bringing it to, bringing it out of, you know, I, I think Tim Burns is an okay director, but bringing it out of kind of the muck in a sense and, and giving it a lot of merit. 
you know, into the yeah. point where now like they look at superhero movies and we're talking about them for best picture and whatnot. But I think this is the movie that kind of like establishes the fact that you can take a really excellent director, give him a vision, give him some freedom and he's able to do something with it. Mm. And, and that's why it's my number 85. All right. So if you have a problem with any of that, fight me. <laughs> I will lose. Have... I'll lose quickly. He'll punch me once and I'll cry and I'll go home. Hey. If you want to um, tell us which of the Batman movies is your favorite, um, you can hit us up on Twitter. And if it's Batman versus Superman, I'll be confused. And sad. Right. I'll be sad for I, you. I won't understand. It's because I, I... If someone came up to me and said Batman versus Superman was their favorite Batman movie, I would just... I'd be like, Zack Snyder, how you doing? I'd be crushed for them. I'd be like, your life must stink. What a terrible <laughs> life you had. Um, even, even Ben Affleck is like, it's not. No, not even close. Did you, ever, did you see that New Yorker picture? The picture that the New Yorker published, they wrote an article about like... I forget which movie Ben Affleck was making, but he's like all bloated and stuff, and he's standing on like a beach in a towel, and he's just kind of he's just like leaned back and, and just looks so sad and despondent. It was like the wasn't profound... that really bad like gangster movie he did? No, it was a different. It was like a movie that hasn't no. come out yet, and it's just like the deep the the headline was like the profound sadness of Ben Affleck or something. And I was like, that's the greatest thing I've ever read. <laughs> um, but yeah, so if you have anything to say about Ben Affleck. Or Batman, or anything, you can uh, send us a message uh, on Twitter at twitter.com slash film pivotal. Or you can um, look at pictures of our beers that we when drink. we post them occasionally. We post them on instagram.com slash pivotal film. Pivotal film. Or you can write us at pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit pivotalfilm.com to see a list of the movies that we've talked about and the beers we've drunk and links to how to subscribe to some stuff. Is it drunk or drink? Drunketh. Okay. Drankethen, I think. Drotten. Drotten. Yeah, that's actually it. Drotten, yeah. With a G-H. Well, absolutely. Got it. Um, Yeah. If you got some new words that you want to throw at us, correct our drotten. Yeah. Um, and it's November now, so the temperatures outside are getting chillier. You're going to start seeing some snow, depending on what part of the country or world you're in. If you're in the Southern Hemisphere, you're approaching summer. Yeah, if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, you might see some snow. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows, Who knows? now, Mario? Global warming is going to be rampantly increasing. Yeah. Um, but because it's getting colder, it's the time to sit inside, maybe inside of a theater. Oh, oh. I see what you're saying there, Mario. You're saying that people should go see a movie, drink a beer, and talk to you next week.